coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazz Wall Report. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. We're going to be talking about the ISIS crisis today. You know, for a while it seemed that ISIS was focused on building its Islamic empire in its core areas of Syria and Iraq. But in a two-week span, they've been responsible for attacks in France, Egypt and Lebanon that's killed over 400 people. They make no bones about their global expansion plans. And the terrorist attacks have raised even more questions and experts in different areas provide different rationale. Religious experts focus on the group's Islamic beliefs. Military experts focus on their organizational skills. Oil experts stress the financial resources the groups accumulated from oil sales. And Middle East analysts point out how ISIS have exploited local political grievances. But we have one man on the show today who can bring all this together to help us better understand what's going on, what we need to do, and what lies in store for us in the future. He's an internationally recognized authority on issues of national security, irregular warfare, and terrorism. He is the chairman of the Threat Knowledge Group and also serves as the chair of military theory at the Marine Corps University. And if you've been watching Fox News recently, you would have seen him almost on every show as he's our go-to guy on everything related to terrorism. He's none other than Dr. Sebastian Gorka. Welcome, Sebastian. Thank you, Vip. Wonderful to be back on your super show. You're quite the Fox News star these days, huh? <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's been, unfortunately, when the world is on fire, uh, mm. business is good for me, and uh, I get a lot of requests. So uh, the world is on fire, and the threat is one directed at America, not just uh, tourists in Paris, unfortunately. Well, you know, what an, uh, what a cruel few weeks it's been, you know, after France and this hotel in Mali incident. You know, one of the questions I have is, are we piggy in the middle? Because France was ISIS, the the, the Mali incident was Al-Qaeda. Uh, they seem to be competing with each other, and we seem to be the victims. I, I love that. I love that phrase, piggy in the middle. I think that goes back to our, uh, our British uh, roots or playing on the playground. Um, Yes, so, so we, to understand the, the catastrophic uh, nature of uh, the Middle East and even places in Africa today, mm. it needs to be understood as a war within Islam between two uh, versions of Islam. You have the Sunni extremists, best typified by Al-Qaeda and ISIS on one side. Mm. Then you have the Shia extremists, which are, of course, headed by the mullahs in Tehran. Both sides wish to reestablish, to expand their caliphate, their version of the theocratic uh, empire of Islam. And in the meantime, we have Christians in the middle, we have Hindus, we have Yazidis, we have people who are being decimated as this civil war within Islam uh, uh, un- un- unveils itself. And now we have this latest uh, uh, twist, if you will, and that's this uh, competing for the brand of Sunni jihadism between ISIS and al-Qaeda, because ISIS was for more than a decade the, the brand leader. It was the epitome of modern jihadism. And in just a matter of a couple of months, 
they've been blown out of the water. Nobody talks about al-Qaeda anymore, and it's now ISIS, the Islamic State, and Abu Bakr. And as a result, we see this desperate push from al-Qaeda to demonstrate their relevance once more, and apparently uh, they did so through this uh, attack in Africa. Now, in the last two weeks, I mean, have you... You've been obviously doing your research. Have you noticed something that, you know, what is the administration not telling us that we should know? Wow, where to begin, where to begin? Um, Give me top three things. Okay, top three things. So um, you can get this in a little bit more detail uh, in our report, Mm. uh, ISIS, the the domestic threat, that's uh, threatknowledge.org. You can download the whole report. But just the the big key findings, because we've been working all the uh, unclassified open source information for for several weeks now on what is the actual threat to America. And and here are just the the raw statistics that should make everybody sit up and and listen. Uh, Number one, we have um, arrested or killed 82 ISIS sympathizers, ISIS members on U.S. soil in the last 20 months. So it's it's not a theoretical thing. It's not about events happening 8,000 miles away in the Middle East or 5,000 miles away in Paris. We've had 82 arrests or or, uh, interdictions here in the United States. Second, um, the number of recruits, so the frequency with which ISIS is recruiting Americans or people here in America as as permanent residents, is 300% higher than the al-Qaeda recruiting. So if you look at the, the, the per, if you prorate it per month, uh, ISIS is recruiting three times as many recruits in America than a- uh, ISIS was on average per month. And then, and then the last thing, uh, the most disturbing uh, uh, of all, is the fact that of those people that we arrested, um, half of them wanted to go abroad, wanted to go and fight for ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Mm. But a full 30% of them, so almost a third, had no intention of leaving America, but had decided that the best way to serve the new caliph, to serve the new empire of Islam, and to fight the jihad, the holy war, the best way to do that is to kill Americans on U.S. soil. As a result, even the most skeptical person, just based upon the facts, must conclude that the likelihood of a Paris-type incident here in the U.S. is really not a question of if, but rather a question of when. So that leads me to ask you, when is when? Hmm. Well, when is when. If, if I knew that, uh, I would be you know, uh, talking to my colleagues at the FBI and within the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, if we knew that, then we could uh, neutralize the threat before it even, you know, left left the the the, uh, the, the front gate and uh, put on its uh, suicide vest. So, but, but they're threatening us as we speak and as we enter into the holiday period, right? Yes. Well, just uh, just yesterday we saw not only the announcement from the State Department, the travel warning for Americans, which is actually a travel. I, I don't know if I've seen this before. A general travel warning against terrorist attacks against U.S. citizens, mm. which uh, doesn't expire till February. I mean, we're still in November, and they've put out this multi-month warning for U.S. US citizens traveling abroad. And at the same time, we just heard last night that both the FBI 
and the Department of Homeland Security have information about uh, ISIS activities here in the U.S. that could lead to an imminent attack, and that's why the president is holding a special meeting as we speak uh, to deal with with the question of that threat. So, um, uh, so uh, when is the short term? That's what I mean. It's it's it, it's imminent, but it's in the short term. It's not a long term thing that no, we can expect all, an attack. Not at all. No, not at all. If, if you look at all the arrests we've, we've had already, if you look at the fact that Director Comey himself, the, mm. the director of the FBI, testified in open session uh, that there are now uh, uh, ISIS investigations ongoing in every state of the Union, or 50. I mean, even Hawaii in Alaska, which is quite incredible. And then we have uh, a document that was acquired by Judicial Watch through freedom of information. And that document from a state law enforcement agency to the FBI reveals that not only are there investigations in all U.S. states, there are more than 900 of them. There's more than 900 Mm. current active investigations of not al-Qaeda, but ISIS uh, supporters or potential plots in the United States. So, yes, the short term is is right now, Vip. It's, It's right now. Now, Obama's speaking as you and I speak on a national security level. Is or have you heard anything from Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi? Uh, we haven't heard from Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, for a long time. Mm. He's probably uh, ensconced uh, somewhere in Raqqa, uh, being well looked after and keeping off uh, the the, uh, the communications network that, that makes him vulnerable. But we do have a, a recent ISIS video, a very short video just released a matter of hours ago, which is incredibly professional, probably one of their, their slickest propaganda videos yet. And it's talking about taking the war to America on U.S. soil. So even if he's not making pronouncements, uh, he definitely has his propaganda arm working feverishly to continue to send the message that we are on, you know, we are, we are in the crosshairs of this very, very successful jihadi organization. But isn't that unlike him? Because right now he's managed through his organization to create a global stir. So in his world, this is a moment of glory. Oh, it is. Oh, it is. I so mean, I would you know, expect him to make some sort of an announcement back in the mosque or something like that. Possibly, possibly. Um, this is really what terrorism is all about. It's about engendering fear, and, and they've, they've managed to do so with, with, the, with the gruesome attacks in, in Paris. Mm. Um, but maybe, you know, maybe as we speak, as Obama's having his meeting, maybe Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in some secure location is uh, filming his uh, next video announcement. That's uh, definitely within the realm of uh, possibility. If you were in the mind of ISIS and you knew that America is having a security alert all the way to February, then would you plan something in March? Uh, yes, I, I, I would say that you know after February, obviously things may be a little bit easier for me. But but the fact is they're already here. We know that from the arrests. So. Mm-hmm. It, the idea that they're already here and they don't have something in the pipeline already. Uh, in our report, um, we, we, we talk about not just the arrests and the interdictions. Hmm. We talk about the social media, you know, ISIS empire. And, it, and it's stunning. There's one individual uh, that we talk about in detail who is one of the most popular um, American ISIS uh, ideologues. 
And before he went dark, his uh, website, his uh, social media presence had more than 40,000 followers. So, you know, we may have arrested 82, mm. but if you think that there's somebody who's spewing the venom of, of ISIS uh, ideology online uh, as an American uh, or as a person here in America, and he's got almost 50,000 followers, then there are people here that are planning as we speak, Vip. When they deploy, uh, that's something, hopefully, that uh, our intelligence professionals in the FBI uh, will be able to pick up upon if we have the requisite sources in place to identify them before they mobilize. You know, one thing that occurred to me during, well, after the, the uh, attack on, on uh, France was when uh, France then took it forward and did the airstrikes. I didn't hear much about them going to the UN or getting the UN support. I mean, you know, yeah. is at, at, at this point, the UN is silent. I mean, I haven't seen or heard or read much. And is, is the UN relevant anymore at times of global crisis like this? I think the, the UN has been really irrelevant when it comes to uh, extant uh, serious threats. Mm. The, the UN has developed a, a quite formidable capacity to um, deal with humanitarian crises. So mm. they, they, they have a peacekeeping. Once the ceasefire has been established, can deploy their blue berets. Uh, if there is a refuge, if there is a, a natural disaster, as was recently in Pakistan or in, in uh, Asia, uh, Earth, tsunami, and so forth, the UN has a capacity to respond to those. But when it comes to hard-headed national security, when we're talking about things like ISIS or al-Qaeda, um, no, it's, it, 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 it fundamentally breaks down, and, and that's built into the nature of it, because look, at, look how it's constructed. This is a Cold War organization mm. that put into its national, uh, put into its Security Council's permanent members countries like China and Russia. Now, w what are the common interests between America, France, Russia, and China? This is why we see this peculiar, you know, what China is doing in, in, in the South China Seas. We see Russia's very peculiar uh, operations now going on in Syria. So, so the UN is, is not fit to deal with these threats because the key actors that have a veto right have divergent interests. And as a result, there's never going to be a consensus coming out of New York. Now, in your report, you had, and we discussed this in the last show, that they have a three-part strategy. ISIS have a three-part strategy. And it was, I think it was vexation, spread savagery, administer savagery. Correct. Right. Very good, yes. Uh, and which phase are we in now? So they, ISIS, so this is based upon the e-book by an Egyptian uh, ideologue called Abu Bakr again, but this time Abu Bakr Naji, hmm. N-A-J-I. It's called the Management of Savagery. And your listen, listeners can actually download the whole uh, English language translation uh, at uh, my website, my personal website, which is uh, thegorkabriefing.com. So it's thegorkabriefing.com. And uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Three phases to build the caliphate. Uh, there is the vexation phase, lots of low-level attacks. Then there's the spreading of savagery phase. That's ISIS about two years ago. And now we're in the third phase, which is the consolidation and the expansion phase. Uh, and, and ISIS has followed this to a T. They have established the landmass 
in the Middle East that mm. is the new caliphate in Syria, in Iraq, territory that now is larger than the territorial expanse of the Kingdom of Great Britain. And, and now they're beginning to provide services. They've put a judicial system in place. They've implemented Sharia law. They've even started, believe it or not, to mint their own currency. There is an ISIS, uh, you know, coinage now, mm -hmm. which, is, which is classically a, a mark of a, of, of a functioning nation state. And now they're going to use this territory, this proto-caliphate, as a launch platform to launch new operations into new territories. Of course, in the Middle East, uh, I would say uh, Jordan, I would say Saudi Arabia. But because we know, again, from unclassified reports, they have more than 4,000 Westerners who've been recruited to ISIS, that's Brits, Americans, Germans, you name it, who have those requisite Western passports, they will ship, they will deploy um, numbers of, of Westerners back home to take the fight to the infidel on the infidel soil, just as we saw recently uh, in Paris, and now as as Belgium is is trying to track down this this missing jihadi somewhere around Brussels. Well, talking about the fight, I read, I think it was yesterday, that Obama's instructed the military to drop leaflets in Iraq and Syria, giving ISIS a forty-five minute warning before a bombing attack. Is that true? Yes, I actually uh, tweeted this out myself. We have pretty reliable sources that actually have sent uh, photographs of of the leaflets uh, that are being dropped by our, our information operations of professionals, uh, fundamentally against the tankers. So it's, it's warning the ISIS uh, tanker drivers that are moving all this illicit oil that's funding the terror group mm. uh, that we're coming to get you but um, we're going to give you due warning, which is very peculiar. Uh, these are people who are complicit in assisting uh, the most successful uh, insurgency of its type uh, in the world today. Right. And we're being so polite to them that we're saying, oh, by the way, we're coming. Um, why don't you just you know, get out of the vehicle, leave the keys, and, uh, and, and then we'll come and destroy it. Uh, this is not how you go to war. One of the most important things in war is you do not tell the enemy what you are about to do. Uh, and again, so isn't this an act of treason? I, look, it's, yeah, treason is defined as, you know, consciously aiding and abetting an, an enemy force. You give a 45-minute warning, I think you're consciously aiding and abetting their uh, ability to get yeah, out of the way. But, but there has to be the intent that, that you want the other side to win. I don't think this is a case of wanting the other side to win. I just think this demonstrates, again, the rank incompetence of the policymakers in Washington. I work very closely with our military, uh, with our Marines, with the special forces. Those guys are professionals. They're, they're, most of them have got multiple tours in the region. And if it were up to them, there would be no warning given. There would be no quarter given. The enemy would be destroyed. But this is a, this is a kind of dilettantic uh, this is a dilettantism of, of, of uh, you know, the 20-somethings the running around the National Security Council who think because they've got an MA in international relations from Georgetown, they mm. actually know better than a three-star general how to wage war. Well, from an ordinary guy like me on the street, it's bloody stupid. For a fourth grader, they, they know. You don't tell the bully in advance when you're going to pop him on the nose to teach him a 
assassins. Right. It, it, absolutely. I mean, it's it's it, it's it's rank incompetence, and and it's fantasy land. But it's all part and parcel of of I think the arrogance of the people that are making the decisions at the highest level, who've never worn a uniform, and as a result, have no understanding of, of what the realities of war really are. Because every guy you prevent from getting killed is one guy extra who's going to come to kill you back. Completely, yes. And, and what have you demonstrated? What, 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 okay, let, let, let's... Uh, perfect point. What message does the enemy draw from that behavior? What, what do they conclude? They conclude that we have no idea what we're doing and that we're just not serious. It is a cliche, but as is the case with most cliches, there's a grain of truth in it. In the Middle East, in the part of the world where we are engaging in the fight right now, the, 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 most, um, the best way to communicate is not through reasoned Socratic dialogue, especially if you're dealing with, with barbarians like ISIS. What is understood in that type of milieu is power. And I'm sure the Russian forces are not dropping leaflets informing <laughs> the... It is Nazi so state. ridiculous. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I'm laughing because I can't believe we would actually do something so stupid. That's where we are today, Vip. There's a, there's, a, there's a complete disjuncture between the national security professionals of this nation, the greatest nation in the world, and the people who actually have the, the authority to deploy them and to decide how we go to war. It's, so it's, our, our money is being used to produce leaflets. Yeah, our money is being used to produce leaflets mm. that will make sure that that jihadi accomplice mm. can live to fight another day. day yeah. Because we've told him when we're coming to get him. Now, at the forefront of this new policy, there's an increased military effort, obviously, to fight ISIS in Syria. But you know what? Our efforts, I think, are being slowed down by this. There's a widening debate over whether Syrian President Bashar Assad who's supported by Russia and Iran, uh, but reviled by us, that he should remain a part of the solution in Syria. Yes. So, uh, but, again, wouldn't remove, but wouldn't removing Assad be like removing Saddam and then cause a bigger mess? Oh, my gosh. So, so, so um, my wife works very closely with Christians of the region, mm. the heads of the churches, the ancient Christian churches in, in the Middle East, in Iraq and Syria. And we brought them over here to Washington to, to meet with, with uh, people on the Hill, to meet with congressmen and women. And they're very explicit. So you know, don't listen to us. Let's listen to the people in the region that are suffering. They say if Assad goes, that's it. The Christians will be massacred. They've been massacred already. Mm -hmm. But if Assad goes, that's it. Because the idea that you're going to replace Assad with some kind of you know, Jeffersonian Democrat is again rank fantasy. He is not a nice man, let's be honest. He's not as nasty as his father, but he is not a nice man. But he is a member of a minority, he's a member of the Alawite Shiite minority. And as a member of a minority, he has protected and supported other minorities over the years 
out of that sense of being in a in a relatively weaker position. And and just one last thing. Let, let's take the, the the religious thing out of it for a moment. Mm. Let's talk again about about just raw geopolitics. If we have two nations that are nuclear nations, Russia and China, that support Assad, how on earth can we even countenance making the removal of Assad a pillar of U.S. foreign policy? What are we going to do? Are we going to go to war with Russia and China over Assad? Assad stays. Whether that, whether that National Security Council, you know, young staffer likes it or not, mm -hmm. as long as China and Russia are on our side, side that's reality. Right. That's what you have to deal with. Strategy is a lot like politics. Well, hold it right there. Hold it right there. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you to take your suit off, your, your tie off, and, and, and your diplomatic, uh, you know, perspective on things. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be bullied, you got to act like a bigger bully. Now, ISIS like to terrorize us. How can we terrorize ISIS? Well, I'd be careful here. You don't, you don't want to become a bully, but you want to use force in a way that shuts the bully down. So um, a, a, a very, very senior uh, U.S. general hmm. said to me, um, in a, in a meeting recently, and, and it, re it was really clearly heartfelt. He said, every day that ISIS exists sends a certain message to the world about America. And he's absolutely right. Well, what are we saying to the world when a nation that has 70,000 special forces alone has 12 aircraft carriers, um, and, and is the greatest military force the world has ever seen. When, when we exist in the same universe as a bunch of uh, jihadis with, with small arms who number mo no more mm. than 65,000 people, what message are we sending to the world? So we have to do something. We have to do something decisive. Um, we have to crush them, but primarily we have to crush them uh, by, with, and through, this is the motto of the special forces, by, with, and through our local allies. We shouldn't be, and we needn't be, the face of, of you know, ISIS's destruction. It should be the Egyptians, the Jordanians, the Iraqis themselves. It should be the Kurds that close with and destroy the enemy, but with us very much in the mix and supporting them. So that's the physical part of the answer. We have to crush them decisively or help the local actors uh, to do so. And secondly, uh, something we haven't even begun to do really in the last 14 years is take the fight to them ideologically. We have to delegitimize their message the same way we did with the Soviet Union, the same way uh, Ronald Reagan made a communist ideology a laughing stock in the world and therefore facilitated its collapse from the inside. We have to do the same with this, this message of, of holy war and global jihad. And again, help those who are already trying to do so in the region, but who we don't touch because the administration thinks, oh, well, that's religion and we can't talk about religion. Well, if we don't talk about jihad, we will not win this war. But what would cause real fear in them? Because, you know, they are ready to die. Yes, the, of course.
course, this is a very different kind of enemy than the Soviet Union because for them it's not about survival, it's, right. it's, it's about salvation. But how can we make their living existence a hell? I don't think we can make, uh, in, in the sense that we understand it, mm. their physical conditions a hell because look at what they put up with. Look at what bin Laden put up with. I mean, living in the mountains of Afghanistan for years and years and years, that's hard, hardly living the high life. So these people are committed to the harshest of conditions. But, but what we do is we, we, we undermine their sense of self and the, the, the narrative that people believe in. So um, one very powerful weapon is humor. We don't use that adequately. They're very afraid of, of, of humor being used against them, especially when it comes to their, their, their manhood or their masculinity. masculinity. And, and beyond that, beyond using humor, there's one, there's one core vulnerability they have. Uh, they, they build everything that they do around the concept that they are the Salaf. They are uh, the best they, they are emulating the best generation of Muslims that ever lived, the first three generations after Muhammad. Mm. Well, we have to destroy that. We have to say, hang on, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, you say you're the caliph of Islam and you're protecting Islam from the infidel. How is it that the majority of your victims are in fact Muslims? That's where you hurt them the most. They, they're targeting us. They're targeting Christians, Yazidis, and Jews. Mm. But by, by factors, the highest number of, of their victims are their fellow Muslims. When you, when you point that out through strategic communications and information operations, you really strike at the heart of their claim to legitimacy, and, and that's where the war will be won. You know, all your strategies have been very legitimate, and, 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 and they make total sense. But if we wanted to beat the enemy, sometimes you have to think like the enemy. And I think in our last show, you know, uh, we talked about understanding the enemy, if you recall. Yes. Um, I, I, I read, um, I think it was two days ago, that the anonymous group have declared war on ISIS. Should we, as, as a government, be collaborating with sort of these underground groups, hiring mercenaries and, 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 and using the anonymous group to sort of get into their infrastructure, their uh, digital infrastructure? Well, we should definitely be collaborating with anybody who sees the, the enemy as, as, as an enemy as well, but only, mm. only this is an incredibly important proviso, if they, they share a modicum of um, the same values that we do. This is why thinking that Iran is our friend now because they're attacking ISIS is absurd because Iran, after they destroy ISIS, wants to destroy us. So the old saw that the enemy of my enemy is my friend is actually wrong in this case. Uh, anonymous, uh, you know, I, they say they're taking the war to ISIS in the cyber domain. I just don't take these people seriously. Uh, you, you know, th th these are what I call uh, geek anarchists. They're anarchists who, who don't have the, the spine to actually throw Molotov cocktails on the streets like the anarchists of 100 years ago. So they sit in their basement on their mom's computer, you know, hacking into the FBI or hacking into places that they think are a challenge. But, but they could be hacking into one lone wolf communicating with ISIS in Iraq and, and thereby could, preventing some sort of tragedy happening on U.S. soil. They could be. 
be. But again, what, what's what's your command and control, and what's your visibility on that? What what if they what if they hack into somebody's you know a jihadi network and think this is really cool and change their mind and then become a member of it or use the assets? What if they get access to some you know, deadly weapon through their hacking and think, well, this is really a, a wonderful asset. It shouldn't be used by Muslim extremists. I'm going to use it to take down the U.S. government. So th- there has to be that, that, that modicum of an overlap mm. with our interests and the proxy's interest that will maintain a, a, a judicious use of force or a judicious use of hacking or whatever it is that doesn't endanger us. And I'm, you know, bottom line, Vip, I'm not sure uh, Anonymous is on, on the side of the stars and stripes. Everything that, that you so majestically talked about when we met at that National Guard event recently in Cheyenne, I, I'm not sure that Anonymous subscribes to those values. As a result, that kind of collaboration could be could be potentially dangerous. I guess I'm desperately looking for help because, you know, we seem to be in a situation where we're at their mercy rather than the other way around. You know what I mean? Oh, yes, yes. But, but again, you, you, you mustn't allow the barbarians' success to drag you down into uh, uh, barbarity yourself. So, you know, I, I hear this a lot right now, even on, on the conservative media, that, oh, well, look at what ISIS does. Well, you know, look at the, they, they drown people and behead them, so we should waterboard people. Uh, is, that, <laughs> is, that, is that who we are? Is that what America st- stands for? You know, the, the, the Third Reich gassed people, mass executions of, of, of Jews, horrific torture of, of Catholics, of homosexuals, you name it. So does that mean anything goes? Does that mean we throw the rule book out of the window? I would say that's where the, the death of the republic begins. We have to maintain our probity in the face of barbarity. Otherwise, uh, what is the, the difference between them and us? And, and the slippery slope is, is, is you know, in full evidence and could drag us down to a reality that we will regret. Well, you talk about slippery slope, but on your Facebook, you, had, you posted something that said that we have 50,000 non-deployable soldiers in the U.S. Army. I don't know if you recall that. Yes, I do. Is America, that leads me to ask you, is America ready for battle? That's a lot of soldiers, buddy. If you mean, is, is the America of Washington, uh, New York, Boston, um, San Francisco, and L.A. ready, I'd say no, definitely not. Hmm. But for me, that's not America. Um, the people I work with, they're ready. I mean, there are people I work with in uniform who are itching to go back because they have friends. They made friends in Iraq, and, and they want to go back and help their friends. As a nation, your question is a tough one to answer, because really, we're at war, but how many Americans feel that they're at war? When, when we were at war in World War II, you know, kids were collecting their, their aluminum, you know, gum wrappers so that we could build airplanes out of them. Everybody was mobilized, even if they weren't wearing a uniform. So um, I, don't, I don't see that today. That Remember, doesn't exist what? anymore. No, that sense of national effort, of unified effort, I just don't see uh, anymore. Uh, and as a result, you remember what President Bush said? You know, I'm a conservative, but, but I, can, I can, you know, criticize uh, conservatives. 
he said after the attacks, you know, go out and shop. Well, I'm sorry, that's not what the Founding Fathers believed. And America wasn't, you know, defined by going to the mall after you have a mass casualty attack. It's about values that are eternal and immutable. Uh, and I'd like to see that in our leadership again. But what was this about the 50,000 non-deployables? Oh, so, yeah, so this is people, so we have, uh, this uh, post was that we have a, 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 a shockingly large number of people in the U.S. Army who, for various reasons, uh, have been designated non-deployable, that they're just not fit to serve in a, in a line unit uh, in theater. Uh, and I think, you know, that, that is something that, that needs to be looked at more closely. Mm because we are a nation at war, and if you're not fit to serve in uniform, uh, that is uh, not why you were enlisted or, or given a commission. And as a result, we have to think twice about the standards we have. We see this again and again and again, that standards are being watered down, not because of the weakness of our military, but because of political exigencies or political correctness. And the more you water down the standards, the more people will potentially exploit them and be found to be unfit for service. Well, isn't that then why we are sort of reluctant to put boots on the ground? No, I think the boots on the ground, the reluctance of boots on the ground is, is a far more general um, issue amongst America, American taxpayers, American voters. Mm. The, the reality is that um, the, the, the uh, operations in Iraq and Afghanistan under the Bush administration were not well handled. Uh, we see now the Obama administration making things even worse by the pulling out of our troops from Iraq in uh, 2011 and, and their denial, you know, the, the ISIS is a JV team uh, absurdities. And that's um, unprofessional behaviors by our political elite. The average taxpayer is just incredibly leery, and I, and I don't uh, blame them. But at the same time, this doesn't mean you can revert to the isolationism of a Ron Paul or a Rand Paul mm. and say, well, just, you know, pull the shutters down on the east and the west, be fine. That didn't work in 1941, and that didn't work in 9-11, and as a result, the, the, the close your eyes and isolate America is not a real option. You also said, don't wait for Uncle Sam to protect you. What did you mean by that? <laughs> wow, you, re you really have been following me. You, uh, you're like a mini NSA. I'm impressed with it. <laughs> um, the, um, I, just, I just made a comment in one of my TV interviews that mm. after Paris, um, you, you can't wait. You can't dial 9-11. I mean, the people, remember the people in the concert hall were, were, were texting, were calling the police, saying we're being slaughtered in here, and it took the police more than 40 minutes to deploy their SWAT teams as they're waiting outside. You can't expect the federal government to look after you all the time. You've got to take responsibility for your own safety and for the safety of your loved ones. If you have the mental fortitude needed to use deadly force, if you think you can do that, mm. and if you're in a locality that allows you to carry a weapon, get licensed, get training, and do so. If you're not, then you just need to be tactically aware. Look at what's going on around you, and when you are, when you are in a place of danger, be very clear about your options. You have three options. When that jihadi storms into that office or into that concert hall or that restaurant, you can flee, if possible, run like crazy. If you can't flee, hide, hide somewhere. While they, we, we saw this in Mali. And if you can't run and if you can't hide, you must fight. That's your only option. Becoming a, a, 
a, a victim that doesn't protect themselves, I think that's, that's, that's the un-American way. So be aware and fight and train yourself so you have a chance more than those poor people in that concert hall. Now, you've had a chance, obviously, to hear what Obama's been talking about, the French president and then the British prime minister. Um, from their speeches, do you get a sense that we are still underestimating ISIS, or do you think they've finally woken up? That's a good question. Um, I, I get a sense, perhaps, that the French have woken up. I'm not have I can't hear you. I'm sorry. You're cutting off. Oh, sorry. I, I think the French mm. um, have have woken up. I'm not sure they have the capabilities to strike a deadly blow against ISIS because they just don't have the expeditionary capabilities that we do. Uh, I think uh, the British, at least at the lower level amongst the operators, fully understand the threat. When it comes to this administration, absolutely not. What did the president say yesterday? He said... Um, my going to the global warming, the, the climate summit, the climate change summit in Paris hmm. will, will, will strike a blow to ISIS. I don't think they're worried about the weather. Something tells me ISIS are not worried about the weather. It, but, but doesn't it sound like Monty Python, Vip? Yeah. I mean, it, it's a joke. What, you're going to Paris in your 36-car convoy uh, is, is going to somehow impress ISIS? I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Sorry, uh, the, the idea that, that the president is going to travel mm. to uh, Paris in his 36-vehicle convoy behind bulletproof glass, right. somehow that's going to strike a blow to the jihadi mindset. It's ridiculous. And then, you know, Obama also said, and I, I think they paraphrased it, that ISIS is a bunch of killers with good social media. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think... That's where I feel that he's underestimated the power of ISIS. They, and he made the statement that um, they, 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 don't, they can't provide and they can't govern. They have no plan of governance. Mm. Well, you know what? Um, making up to $4 million a day in illicit oil sales, in racketeering, in kidnapping, uh, I think that's pretty, uh, a pretty serious uh, attitude to uh, raising the finances you need. I think creating your own currency, mm -hmm. I think implementing your own judicial system, I think all of these things um, belie the criticism and demonstrate that ISIS does have a plan. ISIS is governing the territory it has captured and is not just a bunch of ragtag crazies running around the Middle East. And again, it, it demonstrates the, the disconnect between reality on the ground and, and the administration's perception of that reality on the ground. Are you still advising some of the presidential candidates? Uh, I'm, I'm in negotiations uh, with a couple of them, mm. so uh, I can't, can't reveal. Uh, no, don't reveal, but what... Yeah. What do you plan to tell them? Um, basically everything that, that we talk about, Vip, but in a very you know, condensed, very factual, mm. uh, written format and, and in, in oral briefings, that you know, the threat is here, the threat is imminent. There is a way to defeat them, but it depends upon our taking the threat seriously, 
demonstrating we are serious with regards to dealing with the threat and that we will empower those in the region who can destroy them, but also we will take the actions necessary to undermine the ideology that keeps recruiting thousands and thousands of people to this cause. So, you know, it's not, it's not rocket science, it's not brain surgery. There is a way to win this war, but it begins by speaking truthfully about the threat and then taking the strategy that they have seriously and destroying it. Who do you think gets it from both sides? Um, I, I, I don't think, I don't think on, on the Democrat side I see anybody who gets it, because again, it's global warming, global warming, global warming. Um, it's not jihad, and religion has nothing to do with it. So they're, they're just you know, reading from, from the politically correct uh, song sheet. Hmm. Uh, on, on the Republican side, I definitely think that uh, Senator Cruz gets it. I think that Marco Rubio gets it. I think that Carly Fiorina has said some very solid things on national security. Um, and I think uh, there's a lot of work to be done for a certain... Uh, a real estate developer from New York. But he seems to be getting the most sort of backing, even though from his extreme points of view. Well, I think, I think that's fully understandable. I think, you know, where the Obama administration has brought us today mm. has resulted in immense levels of frustration amongst the majority of Americans who may have no idea what the difference is between Sunni and Shia, uh, but very well <laughs> you know, have a lot of common sense mm. and know that what we are doing doesn't work. So when a candidate comes out and, and very force, forcefully says, you know, these things are absurd, these things are ridiculous, and we have to deal with it, uh, that, that has a lot of traction, but it needs to go deeper than just the first knee-jerk reaction to somebody who shows decisiveness, and we have to get to the level of, okay, what's your plan? How are we going to win? Right. So I just want to quickly ask you, we've only got about two, three minutes left on the show, uh, yeah. this whole refugee crisis. What's interesting is, um, that what, why are other parts of the Middle East, like, you know, uh, Emirates, uh, Saudi, Turkey, Egypt, why are they not taking the refugees? Why is it becoming our problem? Yeah, um, you'd really have to ask them, but it's a, I just saw a map, uh, I'm going to put it up on, on, on Twitter uh, later today, mm. a map of who, which countries have how many refugees in the Middle East, and it's stunning. You've got three, more than three million in Jordan and Turkey, and apart from that, it's nothing. Not, the Gulf states basically have no refugees from Syria and Iraq, despite the fact that they're much richer than Jordan or Turkey, and that they have all the space required, uh, and, and they could accept these people who are their co-religionists, who are, who are Arabs for the most part, who are Sunnis uh, uh, for the most part, and could be accepted with, with open hands, uh, welcome arms. Um, why they don't, I, I really don't understand. I, I think there could be some potential uh, innate xenophobia among some of the policymakers of those regions. I think there are some fears mm -hmm. about who is uh, in those refugee influxes, which are not unreasonable at all. Right. But I think uh, fundamentally it's, it's a, lack of, a lack of compassion. I'm losing you again. I'm yeah. losing you again. Are you... So I think, I, think it, I think it fundamentally boils down mm. to, to a lack of compassion from the, from the local political elites. You're not a fan of this refugee crisis, right? Because you think vetting is going to be a problem. I'm not a fan of refugee. 
I'm not a fan of refugee crises in general. I mm. mean, my parents were refugees. They escaped a, a, a wicked dictatorship in uh, Central Europe during the 1950s and had to sit in a refugee camp for weeks and weeks and weeks before they, they received asylum. But remember, I mean, back then, how did we do it? We actually vetted people. We right. spent hours and days mm. interviewing people, making sure that their stories were right, instead of saying, hi, welcome, here's your care package and here's your plane ticket. I mean, that's just absurd. We should help people. We, you know, uh, as, as, as humanitarians, we should assist people who are suffering. But just ask yourself a simple question. When you see t hundreds of thousands of refugees moving across the world, what would you do if you were ISIS? Join them. Of course. You would salt that refugee influx right. with your own assets, your own agents. So it's just common sense to pause, count to ten, and think about how this could be a threat to the nation and what you do to prevent it becoming a threat to the nation. On that note, Sebastian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Anytime, Vip. And a very happy Thanksgiving to you, sir. And to you and your family. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for listening. Your comments and your followers are so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jazzroll and my Facebook page. Just type in the Vip Jazzroll Report. A special shout-out of thanks to my wonderful team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your loved ones. And until next Sunday, have a productive and a very happy week ahead.